If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel 43. Just sort of a, a heads up, we'll be not going verse by verse, we'll be skipping around a bit. We're coming to the last portion of the book of Ezekiel, and the theme that runs through these chapters is restoration. But we need to be careful. We need to take care when we speak in terms of restoration, because we might think that it means primarily a return to the original state, when in fact it points to and it indicates transformation. We've spoken a lot in the past of the paradigm of creation, fall, and redemption. That is, how things were originally when God created the world, how things were affected by sin, the fall, and how things are being redeemed through the work of Jesus. I don't know that we necessarily think this way, but if we're not careful, we might imagine that redemption means a return to the way things were at creation. When speaking of the restoration of Israel, and in these chapters we see it, like that of the temple and the sacrificial system, we should not imagine that it is a return to the way it was you know, before the Babylonians came in. That it'll be Solomon's temple all over again and the Levitical things will be done uh, as they were done before. We should have a sense of this. You should already in the time we spent looking at this because the dimensions, which are given in great detail, don't match Solomon's temple. This is not the same temple. So strictly speaking, We'll use the word restoration, but what we in fact are pointing to is transformation. It's a transformed temple. Thus, the restoration or transformation, as in redemption, points to something that is greater than the original. When we are redeemed through the work of Christ, in some sense, we are in a higher position than Adam and Eve were in the garden. Our redemption doesn't take us back to that original state. It takes us to something that is better and something that is higher. Last Sunday, I jumped ahead to chapter 44, the first three verses. And let me read them to you. Then the man brought me back to the gate, outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, the gate is to remain shut. It must not be open. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. The prince himself is the only one who may sit inside the gateway to eat in the presence of the Lord. So the prince alone is allowed, in fact, to enter through the east gate. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. But today, I want to go back to chapter 43. We had jumped ahead to 44, but to look at chapter 43, verses 13 through 27, it follows a description of the glory of the Lord coming through the east gate and coming into this temple, this temple that Ezekiel is seeing in his vision. As I said last week, the glory of the Lord left through the east gate, and now the glory of the Lord is returning. And as we saw, when the glory returns, Ezekiel falls face down. Um, and then there's a voice, once the glory has entered the temple, there's a voice speaking to him from the temple and among the things that this voice says to him is, Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. 
Let them consider the plan, and if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. One of the purposes of Ezekiel's vision of the new temple was to cause Israel to acknowledge, to be ashamed of the fact that they had sinned against God, they had rebelled against God, which led to the destruction of the original temple. So as Ezekiel's describing this new temple, which is much larger than the original, you say temple, and they're like, but yeah, the temple's gone. And why is it gone? Because we sinned against God, because we were rebellious. And are they, are they going to regret? Are they going to be ashamed of their sin? If they are, then in fact, Ezekiel can tell them all that's said here. Otherwise, it makes no sense for him to do this. The purpose, another purpose is that they would be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. But what does this mean? Because the temple that Ezekiel's talking about does not exist. As much as to say, well, listen, um, if the temple's not there, then I don't, I don't have to follow all the rules and regulations. In fact, let's say I want to. How can I be faithful when, in fact, the temple is gone? This temple, Ezekiel, that you've seen is not there. Okay. No, they were called to be faithful as God's people. Temple or no temple, they are to be faithful to God. Before the temple was ever built, when Moses brought Israel to Sinai, this is what we read. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, this is God speaking to Israel, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is what God says to Moses. Centuries later, in the time of Ezekiel, these words are still true. Just as the glory of the holy God entered the temple, God's people are to be holy, they are to be faithful, they are to be obedient. We hear this, by the way, in Leviticus chapter 19. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, back in chapter 43, when we come to verses 13 through 17, we're given a description of the, te- of the altar with a list of its measurements. And then in verses 18 to 27, um, Ezekiel is given specific instructions regarding the various offerings, the burnt offerings, sin offerings, atonement offerings for the altar, and fellowship offerings. By the way, Ezekiel, you will remember, is a Levite. He's a priest. So this, I think, resonates with him. This is of particular interest to him. Now we go back to chapter 44. Okay? The east gate is shut. Only the prince may sit inside the gateway. And in what follows in chapter 44 and 45 are different aspects of purity, the purity of the temple. If you will, look at verse 4 of Ezekiel 44. Then the man brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. I looked and saw the glory of the Lord filling the temple of the Lord, and I fell face down. Um, we, I mentioned this last week, that this is, this is what we find in Scripture. Whenever people are confronted with the presence of God, they are not casual, they're not relaxed, they fall face down before the presence of God. 
And then in verses 5 through 9, we find out who gets to enter this new temple, the purity of the entrance. One may suspect that this new temple is sort of open to everyone, but that is not the case. Kind of, okay? Let me just give you a heads up. We'll spend, I'll spend most of the sermon on this particular idea of who can go into the temple. The section begins with the reviewing of what Israel had done in the past. Not only did they do detestable practices, idolatry, and some of it practiced on the temple grounds, they also allowed certain people into the temple, the temple grounds, who were not allowed by law to be there. Okay? So attention has to be paid. Okay, here is restoration. Okay? This is, in fact, a transformation. This is a new temple. And there are certain rules and regulations about who can come in and who cannot. The entrances and the exits are mentioned time and time again. Look, if you would, at verses 5 through 9. The Lord said to me, Son of man, look carefully, listen closely, and give attention to everything I tell you concerning the regulations regarding the temple of the Lord. Give attention to the entrance of the temple and all the exits of the sanctuary. Say to the rebellious house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Enough of your detestable practices, O house of Israel. In addition to all your other detestable practices, you brought foreigners uncircumcised and hardened flesh into my sanctuary, desecrating my temple while you offered me food, fat, and blood, and you broke my covenant. Instead of carrying out your duty in regard to my holy things, you put others in charge of my sanctuary. This is what the sovereign Lord says. No foreigner uncircumcised and hardened flesh is to enter my sanctuary, not even the foreigners who live among the Israelites. Again, Ezekiel was a Levite. He was a priest. So this, this is sort of up his alley. He knows these things. It's quite personal to him. In the past, not only had Israel allowed foreigners in, they had actually given some of the duties of the Levites over to foreigners, over to people who were not God's people. Um, God says don't let foreigners in. In our time, this may sound rather xenophobic, a charge that was made time and time again against the Jews in the ancient world. But in fact, Israel is God's people. They are a nation of priests. They are to be set apart. In Deuteronomy 23, we're given a list of who may not enter, who may not be a part of the congregation. Deuteronomy 23.1. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. And then God gives reasons why. They did not meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. Um, what we find in our passage in Ezekiel seems to continue this position. If you're not an Israelite, if you're an Ammonite or a Moabite, um, if you are a eunuch, you, you can't be a part of the people of God. It is not allowed. 
So Ezekiel seems to be, this vision is in line with what God told Moses. But, amazingly enough, we find something quite different and remarkable in Isaiah's book, in Isaiah 56. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Verse 3. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountains my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Even more remarkable, ten chapters later, in the last chapter of Isaiah, God says, and I will select some of them, foreigners, Gentiles, also to be priests and Levites. So the question is, are Gentiles, are foreigners allowed in? Are they not? Ezekiel says no. Isaiah says yes. In both cases, it's God speaking through them. So is God contradicting himself? I think there are two matters here. One is, and the big one is assimilation. Um, We hear this in the New Testament. We are told that we are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. And Paul tries to make this, this very clear in 1 Corinthians 5. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. In other words, Paul says, you know, I wrote you a letter saying don't hang out with sexually immoral people and I didn't mean you should isolate yourself because you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler with such a man do not even eat. So we are in the world. Israel is surrounded by foreigners, foreign nations. There are foreigners who live among the Israelites, but they are not to assimilate. They're not to isolate, but they're not to assimilate. The danger to Israel is the same for us. We live in the midst of the human race, which is in rebellion against the Creator, and there is always the temptation to assimilate. We don't want to be seen as different, as weird, as out of step with society. We must resist the tendency to assimilate. But we must also resist the temptation to isolate. 
I've mentioned this a number of times, but many years ago, almost 50, uh, I met a pastor, um, I'll say in middle America, I don't want to be too specific, who told me that the plan for his church was he was going to have a Christian school for the kids, and then he wanted to have a Christian grocery store and a, a Christian department store, a shopping center for Christians, so that his members would never have to come in contact with unbelievers. Well, no, that's, you know, as much as the danger of assimilation is there, the answer is not to run the opposite direction and isolate. We are, in fact, to be in the world, but not of it. Our calling as God's people is not to isolate. Ezekiel's living, by the way, in Babylon, okay, so isolation isn't a real option, okay. But his vision of the temple points, I think, in a different direction, you know, the people, you live in Babylon, Jerusalem's gone, the temple's gone, you're surrounded, there are more of them around you than there are of your people. There's this pull to just be like everybody else. And Ezekiel's vision says, no, no, you're not to assimilate. The temple, in fact, has rules and regulations about who can come in and who cannot. Um, I don't see it as a contradiction of what we read in Isaiah, but rather a warning to the exiles, don't assimilate. Don't take on the practices of the people around you. By the way, the idea of who may in fact be a part of the assembly and worship with God's people is not merely something that Moses wrote about or that Ezekiel writes about in his vision, but we find it sort of in between in the book of Psalms. Psalm 15, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary, who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury, and does not accept the bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. And then in Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. See, ethnicity is not a guarantee that you get in. Okay, you say, I'm a Jew, I'm circumcised, you have to let me in. Not at all. And Ezekiel's point, I think, God's point through Ezekiel, is that his people need to remember who they are. They are not like foreigners, they are separate. They are God's chosen people, and they are to follow his rules. They are to be obedient Okay, Who, who's going to stand at the door, who's going to stand at the gate and say, you may not come in? Well, this is dealt with um, in Ezekiel 44, beginning at verse number 10. Um, and it's an interesting thing. They, they're the gatekeepers, if you wish. Um, but they are not guiltless. The fact that they had led Israel astray is brought up again. 
And so the purity of the priesthood is brought up. Look, if you would, at verse 10. The Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray and who wandered from me after their idols must bear the consequences of their sin. They may serve in my sanctuary, having charge of the gates of the temple and serving in it. In other words, they are the gatekeepers. They may slaughter the burnt offerings and sacrifices for the people and stand before the people and serve them. But because they served them in the presence of their idols and made the house of Israel fall into sin, therefore I have sworn with uplifted hand that they must bear the consequences of their sin, declares the sovereign Lord. They are not to come near to serve me as priest or come near any of my holy things or my most holy offerings. They must bear the shame of their detestable practices. Yet I will put them in charge of the duties of the temple and all the work that is to be done in it. This, as I said, the section begins with sort of a reminder, oh, in case you've forgotten, Levites, uh, you were partially responsible for Israel going astray. Instead of guiding them in what is correct worship and worshiping the true God, they in fact wandered away and took Israel with them. There are consequences. They get to serve in the sanctuary. One of their duties is to make sure that no foreigners come into the temple grounds. But there is a limit to what they can do. There are consequences for their failure in the past. They can do certain things, but it is only one specific group that is allowed to come close to God in the temple, and that is the, the house of Zadok. Look at verse 15. Um, but the priests who are Levites and descendants of Zadok, and who faithfully carry out the duties of my sanctuary when the Israelites went astray from me, are to come near to minister before me. They are to stand before me to offer sacrifices of fat and blood, declares the Sovereign Lord. They alone may enter my sanctuary. They alone are to come near my table to minister before me and perform my service. This is a line of Zadok. By the way, Aaron was the first high priest, and then it's his descendants who can be high priest. But during the time of Samuel, you may remember Eli, uh, he had two sons who were wicked. Um, God said that his line would end. And in fact, it happens during the time after David died. There were two, I guess you could call them high priests, not competing, but one was Abiathar, the other one was Zadok. Abiathar was a descendant of Eli. And he went not with Solomon, but the other guy. And Zadok, in fact, went with Solomon. And so Abiathar's line, Eli's line, that's finished. Now there's only one high priest line, and it is that of Zadok. Okay. What follows after this is a list of rules and regulations regarding the priest. They are to be pure in their behavior what they wear while serving, how they wear their hair. Um, they cannot drink wine while they are serving. They, who they can and cannot marry. Um, their teaching duties, their work as judges, uh, what makes them unclean and how to be cleansed. Their inheritance, their compensation, what they can and cannot eat. All of this is found in Leviticus. Okay, this is all found in the law. Okay, but something new is added because this is a vision. This is not something that is actually there. 
okay? And I would argue it's not something that is going to be there. It is symbolic. Something is added, and that is where they are to live. And so in what follows, we have a division of the land, what the prince will have, the duties of the prince, a warning to the princes of Israel, various offerings, and celebrating the Passover. Um, What does it all mean? This is, I think, the most difficult portion of Ezekiel. There are different views, and I just want to review briefly what we saw last week. There are different ways to understand Ezekiel. The one is to see that it is taken literally. It's a literal approach. So Ezekiel is given a blueprint for the temple, and this is what Israel is supposed to build. Um, he's given specifications, and he's from the tribe of Levi, so this, he knows this stuff. He knows about the tabernacle and the temple. Um, um, but I don't think this is to be taken literally, and we will see this, Lord willing, next week, because out of the temple will come the river of life. Well, how do you build a temple and have the river of life coming out of it? Okay. Um, the second view is to see this as symbolizing the church, that all the things that Ezekiel's talking about is, in fact, fulfilled in the church. Um, yeah, and I, I don't think that that works either. A third view is to say that this, in fact, will happen in the future. It didn't happen back then but it will happen in the future, that the temple will be built and the sacrificial system will be reinstated. And all the feasts and the festivals, Passover, all that will be reinstated and God's people will practice that again. Um, And this doesn't work either because what we find in the Old Testament are types, are symbols, are shadows of what is to come. Who is to come? And that is the Lord Jesus. He has come. We don't need the temple. We don't need the sacrifices. His was the one sacrifice for all. The fourth view is the one that we take, and that is that, in fact, these things are symbols. So several weeks ago, we looked at Gog of the land of Magog, and we're like, who's Gog? You know, where's Magog? And they're missing the point. He represents, he is a symbol of overwhelming evil and opposition to God's people. So it's repeated again in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, if you're going to talk about who opposes the church, it's got to be Gag or Gog of Magog. Um, so in the same way, uh, what, we, what we've been looking at last Sunday and today, uh, you know, the plans for the temple, um, the sacrificial system, purifying the altar, what the Levites are supposed to do, who can come in and who can't, um, all of these, in fact, are pointing to something that was yet to come. As I said, let's not get stuck on restoration. Let's talk about transformation. And what is yet to come is higher than what was there before. Okay, chapter 45. We come to uh, this chapter. It opens with a section on the division of the land. And the principle found in this early part of the chapter is that Israel is supposed to have a secular that is a non-Levitical governance, that's the princes, okay? It is not to be a nation state in the traditional sense. What Israel is to be is a temple community. They are to be a worshiping community. So you have the temple and that's given in excruciating detail, okay? And then you're told where the priests are gonna live, where the prince is gonna live, it's all, but it all relates to the temple. They are to be a temple community. By the way, this is not, this is looking ahead. Um, In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? The thing that Ezekiel saw, the, the glory, Paul says that's happened. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Unfortunately, in English, when we say you, one doesn't know if that's one person or multiple. If it's plural, singular or plural. We don't know that. So when we read this in English, being Americans and living when and where we do, we assume that it's singular. I am the temple of spirit. Now, Paul will say that in chapter 6. Okay? But here he's talking about the church. The church is, in fact, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are to be a temple community. The temple of God. God's spirit is to live in us as a congregation. Well, having said that, one might be tempted to think, well, if we're a temple community, we don't need uh, government. We don't need a secular government. We don't need princes or kings or presidents or governors or anything like that. We are the temple community. But in fact, what you see is that there are supposed to be secular authorities. Um, chapter 45, verse 9. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You have gone far enough, O princes of Israel. Give up your violence and oppression and do what is just and right. Stop dispossessing my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are to use accurate scales, an accurate ephah, it's a dry measure, and an accurate bath, that's a wet measure. They are of equal but they, one is wet and one is dry. The ephah and the bath are to be the same size, both in modern terms, 22 liters. A bath containing a tenth of an omer and an ephah, a tenth of an omer. The omer is to be the standard measure for both. The shekel, which is two-fifths of an ounce, is to consist of 20 geras. A gera is one-fiftieth ounce. 20 shekels plus 25 shekels plus 15 shekels equals one mina. That's one and a quarter pound. The call here is for honesty, okay? And it isn't just for doing business. It's like, come on, you got, don't be cheating people. Don't say it's a bath and it's not. Don't say it's an ephah and it's not. It isn't just for doing business, but it is in fact for temple worship, for the holy days, for giving to the prince who then in fact is to lead if you look at verse 17, it will be the duty of the priest to provide the burnt offerings, grain offerings and drink offerings at the festivals, new moons and Sabbaths. I mean, so you have, and this gets kind of tricky for us as Americans because we're like separation of church and state. But in fact, you do have the temple community is to have secular government. And the secular government is in fact to be honest. They are to be just. They are not to oppress God's people. What follows this is instruction about keeping the Passover. It should have been familiar to the Jews, but as best we can tell, it's not something that they practiced. One of the amazing things is that the 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness, they never did Passover. It's remarkable. Um, when they got into the, the Promised Land, then, in fact, they did practice for the first time the Passover. It's right, quite remarkable that 
Passover was not practiced because it is the, the event, the event that marks the redemption of Israel. Passover is the redemptive event in the Old Testament. And it is a type of the Lord Jesus. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So all the times that they're doing Passover, they don't even realize that this is in fact pointing to something ahead. They take it seriously, which they should. Instructions are given about how to do it and that they are to do it, the princes are to lead. But it's all pointing ahead to the Lord Jesus who is the Passover lamb. So now we come to the whole point, I think, of the vision. The details may not be as clear as we might want. They might be a bit confusing. But the vision points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the sin offering, the atonement offering. He is the Passover lamb. He is, in the words of John the Baptist, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does that even mean? He's a lamb. What is that? It's for sacrifice, for Passover, for burnt offerings, sin offerings, the atonement offerings. The details given to us in chapter 43 of Ezekiel regarding the altar and the sacrifices should make us aware of the reality that the death of Jesus was not some accident of history. It's not as though Jesus didn't see it coming, that somehow he was a martyr for a cause. Everything we find in the Old Testament is pointing ahead to that. The temple, the altar, the sacrifices, the priests, it's all pointing ahead to him. This is just my opinion, so take it for what it's worth. But I'm convinced that without the Old Testament, and that includes Ezekiel, our view of the death of Jesus is rather flat. It's flat. It lacks nuance. It doesn't have shadows. There's no symbolism. It's just, oh, this guy died. And I don't mean to be disrespectful at all, but I think we see it simply as a death, and we don't think, oh, wait a minute, wait. This is for our redemption, the way that God redeemed Israel out of slavery. This is a sin offering to wash away our sins. This is an atonement offering. All of these point ahead to the Lord Jesus. And again, while the details may trip us up and we're not quite clear about what they all mean, they all, in fact, point ahead. And the death of Jesus is, in fact, a sacrifice. It's not a martyrdom. It's not an accident. It's not a fluke. It's not something you didn't see coming. It, is as, it was as well prepared for as all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. I was looking yesterday to find something. Um, Albert Schweitzer um, it, it wrote a book at the turn of the century called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And near the end of the book, he says, you know, that this man, Jesus, tried to turn the wheel of history, but the wheel of history crushed him. Um, and if we could go back, I'd like to say, Dr. Schweitzer, have you read the book of Ezekiel? Have you read those difficult chapters at the end? 
Have you read Exodus and Leviticus about all the sacrifices? Do you not see a connection? Sadly, many people do not. And as difficult as Ezekiel has been as a book, I think it has so much to teach us about the person of Jesus. The second thing I would tell you in closing is that what we have in this vision is restoration, which means transformation. Redemption is merely more than being restored. Um, It means being transformed. That when the Lord Jesus comes, we will not, if we are dead and we are raised, we will not simply be the same as we were before. We will be transformed. I don't know if you know Joni Mitchell's song, Woodstock. There's a recurring line, a repeating refrain. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. First of all, we can't redeem ourselves, okay? We can't get ourselves. And secondly, um, our redemption is not a garden. We're not going back to Eden. We're going to a city, Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. So it's not restoration alone. It is transformation And then lastly, our call is to avoid assimilation. And the answer to this is not to isolate. Oh, I don't want to assimilate. I I don't want my kids to assimilate into the culture. We better isolate ourselves. Um, We're called to be light and we're called to be salt. And we can't do that if, in fact, we are isolating ourselves. You're like, well, Damon, but if if we're out there in the culture, isn't there a danger? Absolutely. No question. Um, And I think if you look at the church in America today, uh, yeah, we have assimilated big time. But the the answer is not to go live, you know, let's church on Merrill's, let's go live in a commune somewhere and only one of us will go out and buy and sell you know, our groceries or whatever. We don't want contact with the outside world. We might be contaminated. Um, it's a real danger, no question. But the answer is not isolation. The answer is faithful obedience. Let us obey God. Let us walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Uh, that's the answer. And I think Ezekiel tells us that, if we would just listen. Let's pray together. Father, we freely confess there are parts of your word that are really difficult. And having studied these chapters, things I still don't understand. But I do think the point is clear that it all points ahead to the coming of your son, which wasn't a fluke. It didn't just happen. Matthew and Luke make that very clear in the genealogies. His death wasn't simply the result of a betrayal. It's something that had been foretold. And it wasn't the death of a martyr. It was the sacrifice of a lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We are your people. We live in a culture which is not Christian. 
we work with have neighbors who are not believers. There's always the danger that we will take on the customs, the practices, the habits of those around us. Ezekiel warns us against assimilation. But may we not in pride somehow isolate ourselves. That's not the answer either. But like Ezekiel, in exile, in Babylon, to be faithfully obedient. That's the call. We look forward to the day when we will be transformed. By your grace, we pray that we are being transformed now in our thinking, in our living, in our behavior. We look forward to the day when our bodies will be transformed. We will be fully redeemed. That all the things that Ezekiel sees are pointing ahead to something else, something far greater than Solomon's temple. It is when, in fact, your temple would be in your people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. May the Spirit cause us to think on these things and meditate on them in the days to come. And as we walk through this world in the coming week, may we have a sense of your presence. And indeed, your Spirit who lives within us is with us. May we be gracious to those around us, showing the love of Christ. And by your grace, not assimilate, not take on practices that are wrong. I thank you for your grace in our lives. And on this day, we've mentioned birthdays and anniversaries. How gracious you've been to us. Give us the grace to be faithful to you. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.